You're listening to an EG Property Podcast. I'm Tim Burke, EG's Deputy Editor. And in our third and final EG interview live, I'm sitting down with Duncan Owen, Chair of Seller and former Global Head of Real Estate at Schroeder's, to talk sustainability and stranded assets. In this 40-minute conversation, recorded live at EG's Pavilion at MIPIM, we discuss Duncan's role since leaving Schroeder's, the sums behind turning office developments dark green, plans for London's Liverpool Street station redevelopment, and much more. Enjoy. Ladies and gents, welcome to this afternoon's EG Interview Live. I'm Tim Burke, Deputy Editor. I've been here at every panel that I've presented so far, so I think that's well known. But this, this is Duncan Owen, um, who is, well, once just, I say just, the head of real estate at Schroeder's, now with many more hats, um, Chief Executive of Immobel Capital Partners, incoming chair of Workspace, the flexible office operator, and we can reveal here today, drum roll, the incoming chair of Seller, working with James Seller and the team on schemes such as the very ambitious Liverpool Street Station overhaul. And somewhere in London now, an alarm has gone off and one of my colleagues has published that as a story on the EG homepage. <laughs> so we're, we're going to talk through those roles, um, Duncan's views on, on what's happening in the investment market at the moment, dig into um, turning real estate not just green but deep green. But let's start with a bit of small talk. How's your mipping been so far? Um, this mipping's bit, thank you for that introduction, by the way. Um, this mipping's been great. It feels slightly more orderly from my perspective, um, a little bit more relaxed. It feels like there's a few less people in a good sense um, in that you can walk up and down the quasette without being mowed down. Because it can be unmanageable if it's... Absolutely. Too, yeah. um, and I think it's been pleasurable in that I think there's been a gentle shift post-COVID, maybe some conscious, to a, a, a balance between a, it being business as well as enjoyment. And I think that's a nice balance if we can keep it. Does, um, so you, most of the time you'd have been here representing Schroders. Does, it, does the role that you're visiting with change what you're looking to get from the event? Does it feel different being here this year to how it would have pre-pandemic when you were representing a business the scale, the size of Schroders? Yes, it does. It, it's more, I'm representing multiple interests rather than one, rather than it being the size. And I think that is interesting because it gives you a sort of helicopter view and experience. Dif people are interested in different things that you're doing with different hats on. I think with Schroeder's, certainly the 10 years or so that I, I was running it, we were very focused on growth and international growth. And there was a very f clear focus on investment performance. And almost to the degree, nothing else happened. They were the people that were investing with us and were paying us and we wanted to maximise returns. And I think what's happened, a combination of my changing roles and a combination of the changing environment, is people, of course, don't want just investment performance and they don't want just one message. They want the right type of investment performance that does all the things we're going to talk about now related to the E and the S and the G. And they are attached in equal weight. And I don't think you can be successful anymore by just being producers of great investment performance. 
in the same way you can't be successful by just being sustainable. You have to have both. You have to have the win-win. So that's a big difference. That's interesting. Um, I wonder if we can talk a bit about that decision to leave Schroeder's. I was going to ask you what the push factors were, which I, I don't mean to suggest that you're going to come out with a long list of things you weren't enjoying there. But when you're, when you're in that role, you're in that group, um, what prompts you at that point to think there's something else that I can do or that I can offer real estate? For, for me, it was in some ways simple. In some ways, having said that, there were lots and lots of reasons. And why do people ever leave good, world-class, big companies, which Schroeder's is? And, and Schroeder's was thoroughly, from my first day there when they bought out Investor Real Estate to my last day there when I left and became a senior advisor, was thoroughly enjoyable. They are, in every way, a world-class company. And the best credit I can ever give them is, is the sort of company I wish my children would work for one day. They're good people, and for me, I have no hesitation in saying that. So the question probably then is, why do you leave with that background? I think it was a combination of things for me. I'd done three decades of quite high mileage. The last 10 was at Schroeder's, but before that, I'd been on the board at LaSalle. I'd set up my own company. We IPO'd it. We created Vista, and Schroeder's bought it. And that sort of doesn't sound much, but that's 30 years' work condensed. And I think I felt... I'd done the best job I could possibly do for Schroeder's. We increased three, 400% in size. We moved into Asia. I inherited a business that was, had lots of good people in it, but it was break-even. It was in two or three countries, and when I left, we were in 16 countries. And that does take its toll on you, and you have to do things really well for a company like that and for the people that you're working with. And at the moment that you think somebody could do it better, and I think the job was moving from growing something that was a boutique in a big company to something that had become a nice, friendly, cuddly, but monster, it needs to move into a phase of managing it. And you see it all the time. I wouldn't put myself in this category, but you see great entrepreneurs who set up businesses and then they find they're not the best people to necessarily run them. And I think, fortunately for me, I probably spotted that before Schroeder spotted it. Um, so I, I got out before they got rid of me. Um, but um, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I just didn't think... I'd, I'd built exactly what they wanted, but it, I think there would have been someone better to manage it. Okay. And then you, and then you move on to um, start building something fresh in Immobel, and then, as, as we've said, put on many more hats. So kind of take us through how you see that journey. That's a lot that's happened over a couple of years? It, it is, and I didn't foresee it, and I did not plan it. It was, it was probably as haphazard as it appears to have been, because it wasn't strategically planned, I think it's probably fair to say. Um, <coughs> through good fortune, through recommendations, people I'd worked with at Schroeder's, the Schroeder's family, um, there was a confluction of different things happened. Immobel was a very successful developer, and it's, it's tougher for them now, but they wanted to build a parallel investment business. And through various recommendations, my name came up, and that was an interesting challenge. And the obvious focus in there was brown to green conversions offices, which we'll come back to, but I think is the best opportunity in the real estate market since distri logistics distribution 10 years ago. I think at the same time, you wonder when you leave somewhere, will anyone ever want to work with you again? And one or two opportunities came up, one in the public markets with Workspace Group, 
who are London's largest and most successful flexible office operator. And the other, at first, I became a senior advisor to Seller, who would probably have the interesting mantle of having won the very few portfolios in the world that absolutely every investor in the world recognises immediately, whether it's the Shard of Glass, whether it's Paddington Basin, Paddington Central, Paddington Square, whether it's Elstree Studios, whether it's, and now Liverpool Street. And they all revolve around sustainability because the office sector is polarising like almost no other sector in real estate. And if you're creating world-class green buildings that are in prime locations, they're all in that. And I suppose having the experience of a really good green world-class giant office developer, a flexible office operator, and a developer wanting to build an investment business were varied and great fun, if you really stand back from it, but actually also all feed into one another. They all had the benefit that they were related to a similar sector, but they didn't conflict because they were so different in what they each did. Now, you, we've touched on that brown to green conversion, and I know when we last spoke, you, you were sort of talking not just about green, but deep green um, Dark green. Dark, dark green. Dark green. Deep green transactions. Sounds like Pink Floyd, doesn't it? <laughs> Let's unpack that and maybe talk about some of the transactions that you've done with Imabel and how your redevelopment and management of, of those assets captures what, what you're talking about there. Well, they all overlap. I mean, I mean, the thing in the U that the UK will know in Imabel is different that people will know in content of Europe. And of course, they're the kings of Belgium and Luxembourg etc. Kings and queens and, and, and princes and princesses. Um, Leeds was a good example. Um, so it was the dominant business park in the north of England. It had occupiers like HSBC, Capita, NHS, WSP, MI5. Um, but it also had lots of potential, and what we've done is we've, we've helped in a, in a small way with the joint venture partner, Munro K, who manage it day to day. It has a nursery, it now has an extended school, sixth form college, it has an outdoor gym, and we're now building its own railway station, which will be a three-minute journey into the city centre, all of which cuts across the E and very much the S in social impact for the surrounding society actually in the public transport the, the the railway station on site is a game changer so and at the same time that has three building plots it has a couple of old offices which we can make dark green and the occupiers desperately want it to be dark green um, and it's a really good example of things you can do across the spectrum of esg financially we took a bet, and I think this is really important for investments, that the income return and the consequence capital value could be improved by 20 or 25% by making it dark green and having the right social amenities. So very simplistic, at a high level, um, we thought rental income could be proven to be 20 25% higher than it was, and it's a brilliant example of a green premium. I'm not sure now, actually, the phraseology of green premium and brown discount is relevant. I think it's just a chasm. 99% of occupiers want green, sustainable, fossil fuel ex uh, exit, perfect renewable 
energy, social amenities, and only 10% of office properties provide that. And that's why there's the opportunity. That's why there's the polarisation going on in the market. And so if you can provide that in things like the White Rose Park, it's a good example. Um, other things that have been done, developments which I wouldn't take responsibility for, where Imabel have very successfully done other developments, the one I can think of, Multi, which is well known in Brussels, for example, it was a very big refurbishment of which they reused by weight 89% of the materials originally in that building. And that's about as sustainable as you get. And they could recycle half of the buildings, which were bricks and could go into residential development, that they didn't use. So I think those, those sorts of things we've been involved in, um, from that part and that, that particular hat I've been wearing, um, probably even better still, um, if I look at Seller and the journey they've come on, um, the Shard of Glass is world class and everyone in the world knows it. You go to the Middle East, you go to Australia, you go to America, you go around, everyone knows it. But what they've learned from that and they've taken into Paddington Square is outstanding. Uh, you know, it's totally carbon neutral, all renewable power, all the sorts of certifications you want, but you know, you end up with uh, kilograms of, of carbon per square metre of 500 per square foot, 500 pounds square foot, uh, per square metre, I should say. And I, that's, that's just outstanding. It's next to no carbon footprint. Um, and now Liverpool Street is the next development they secured. It's very high profile, almost too high profile. It's got amenities. They're rebuilding, as they did with London Bridge and the Shard, as they did do with Paddington. They're rebuilding the railway, the railway stations, the public concourse, all the public social amenities, all the commuters are going to have more railway stations, longer railway stations, better railway stations, use less private cars, lower carbon footprint. But it's all the detail. I mean, there are 20 examples of this, but I like this one. It's the best one. It's probably the only one I can remember at the moment. Um, it, for example, they've got a hotel. It's going to be a Hyatt Hotel. The Hyatt Hotel has a gym in it, and it has a lap pool. It's on the, the, the gym's on the 10th floor. It's open air. The pool is heated by the excess heat from the office. And then in summer, the air is pumped through the pool, and the air is pumped back into the office, and it cools the office. That is brilliant. It, it, and, and, and there are people with big brains that are doing these things all over the place, and it, it, it does make it a win-win. It does attract me from a financial return perspective. But every occupier you speak to, whether in the Docklands talking about relocating or whether they want to be in London, not in London, whether they're a US attorney moving over, they all want exactly that. They can move into something that is energy efficient, is only re using renewable energy, and they're, sourced gr they're actually sourced on site rather than buying from the grid, and that's very different. And all those sorts of things, everybody wants to occupy. And all the other things, they don't want to occupy, which gets you onto the opportunity for brown offices and stranded. And can I check, when you talk about dark green, can you define that? Is there a line you cross? Is there, like, how far you've pushed something that, um, that you then use that as a term to describe? Yes, interest? yes. I, I think at its simplest... People like certifications, and it's not about certifications. But we've got nine green objectives. We get paid less if we don't meet them, all of them, post-refurbishment, post-refitting. Um, but one example is you would want a Briam excellent or preferably outstanding if it's new. 
you'd want a very clear demonstrable evidenced path to net zero, normally through CREM, and that, that might be reducing the actual energy consumption by 30% by 2030, etc., as well as sourcing it. Um, and it might be, and the third certification often in the UK or equivalents would be EPC A rating, not a B or a C, which are considered okay. They're considered legally lettable in, in seven, eight, nine, ten years. And dark green would have that creme pathway. It would have a credible route to how you're going to reduce the energy consumption on the site, even though the building's going to be more intensively and more efficiently used. It would have the BRIAM outstanding rating, and it would have an EPCAA, and it wouldn't compromise on it. I have to say the, the, that's a certification answer people like to put a hook onto, and they can measure it and they like it. I think the truth of the matter is it's, it's, it's in some ways much more simple than that. And I, I call it the, the four S's. And again, it's a, it's a mechanism that we, that we use to explain to investors in any language from any jurisdiction. People want their offices. They probably want every asset, whether it's their house, their hotel, etc., to fit these. But they, want, they must be strategically important. That means... They must be things that they can use, where they can meet the customers, meet their clients, etc. That's the first F. They, they must be sustainable, dark green, world-class, renewable energy, etc. They must be safe, and that does mean 24-hour access, um, e safe access. But it also, in post-COVID, means the right air ventilation systems, etc., so it won't pass drugs around. But perhaps most importantly of all, if you've got those first three S's, you need the fourth, which is a smart building. And some people call them business management systems. Some kill... But it's not rocket science. People have been doing it in hospitals for 20 years. So a hospital generally, even in the UK, will know where there's an empty hospital bed because they've got sensors. And if it's not used, they don't heat it, they don't cool it, they don't power it, the machines are not on. And you can do exactly the same thing quite simply with an office building. And it reduces your energy consumption and hence your creme pathway to net zero. And with, if you want to not over-science it, if you have renewable power... And if you reduce your energy consumption, and if you properly then seal your building so the wrong heat doesn't get in, and the heat you want to retain stays in, you're significantly further forward in making it a very sustainable dark green building. And that's what the occupiers want. And can we dig into the sums that are behind this? Because you, yeah. uh, you, okay, so you make that point. Uh, only 10% of stock is where it needs to be. So you've got 90% that doesn't, doesn't tick the box. But within that 90%, you've got so many different ways of missing that target, right? Yeah. Presumably there are schemes that you would look at and think, we can do what we need to do to this to get it up to scratch, to make it an absolutely top-notch building for tenants, and the finances work. All of the sums come together. There will be others where it's a lost cause. It's a quote-unquote stranded asset. What, how do you work out, as an investor, the cut-off point? Well, it, it, it is maths. Um, you have to have the right material. Um, and much of the market is at risk of being stranded for the, for the reasons I'm about to say. It depends on the assets. Some assets you can do that for 60, 70 pounds a square foot, relatively cheap in metres, 10, 10 10, 10 euros square meter. In other assets, it can cost you as much as it costs to build a new building. Um, so we looked at one in the city of London recently, we've looked at, at one in Paris, and they were including everything, so fees and finance costs, is £300 a square foot. 
and I've built offices in central London, Paris, for two-thirds of that, brand new, including the demolition. So, like all things, when you refurbish your house, there's a reason why the refurb seems to cost as much as it would be building a new house outright. It's more complicated doing it, and that's what makes them stranded. Now, the only release valve to this, and I know people that have big office portfolios currently don't necessarily welcome this, is about 25% off the previous price and valuations a year, 18 months ago. Because if, if on average, it, it's different in different markets, depends on the rent you achieve, depends on the cap rate that people will use at exit and all those sorts of things. But the fact of the matter is, as an average, as misleading as they can be, the common denominator seems to be if an office is capable of being acquired at 25% lower than its previous year-end valuation in around the eight, end of 22, but really 21 we're thinking of, you normally can buy it and you have enough ability for CapEx to make that a world-class green office. Let's have a chat about some of these other roles now. Um, tell me the story of you and James. So you've been working together for a couple of years now with you as a, a non-exec <laughs> advisor. How did, that, um, how did that relationship develop? Yeah, the, um, so I, sa I say this completely genuinely. The... The last two years as an advisor to seller have been an absolute joy because I've got to know an excellent team um, and I've got to understand their corporate strategy and what they're trying to do. And James, of course, had a great father in Irvine who is legendary, really, has won every award there was to win. And, and sadly, as our parents, mine have passed away, as parents passed away, people evolution occurs. And James w has been looking for a strategy about what's the best way to take the business forward, to evolve it, at the same time as being incredibly focused on ESG, not wanting to demolish things, and wanting to have a positive impact on the society around it. And you can see that from all the amenities in the Shard of Glass. You can see it from the regeneration of the Paddington Railway Station and, and, and the plans for Liverpool Street, things I was talking about, the swimming pool, but also it's the whole concourse, it's the amenities, it's the services. You'll be able to go down a couple of escalators from the office and you'll be on the Elizabeth Line Crossrail Station. And if you don't want to go on that one, you can walk across it. You can go to the Overland, Liverpool Street, lines, commuter lines, or you can go to two or three other tubes one stage further down. <coughs> and so I think that has been... It's a wonderful team with that focus. And I think they have one of the most viable things. In fact, I go as far as say, I don't know a successful company that doesn't have this. They have a sense of common purpose. There's a group of developers, architects, planners, project managers, and they want to build world-class green facilities that have all of the amenities and are what the occupiers, good old boring basic fundamentals, what the occupiers want to actually use. And they have that, it's in every facet of their DNA. So seller has been a joy. I didn't know at the st early stages when we were setting up Inbell Capital Partners, I could have afford the time to be a chair, take a chair role, so I took an advisor role, and, and now I can afford that time to take the chair role. And so working with James and, and his team and the executive team, is, I'm really looking forward from April onwards to work more closely with them. I think it'd be great. And it's, it's, it's just superb when you have that common sense of purpose and with talented people. The other role, workspace, is just as good but completely different. Um, they are... Uh, 
They've got some really prime assets in the CBD, but it's a rarity. They've got 60-odd properties in what they would call Zone 2, and they're a flex office operator, and they have... They're a real, if you look at everything that they're about, they have a common sense of purpose. And it is about providing the right environment, the right platforms for the most entrepreneurial, creative businesses in London. And everybody that walks in and out of workspaces, offices, lives and breathes to do that. And uh, I feel I've never felt as old in a room when I go in a workspace room. They're, they're young, they're vibrant, they're all super cool. They've all got skinny jeans and, and fixed wheel bikes. And, but they all have a real common purpose. And it, you can see it in all their buildings. There's common themes in their buildings. Virtually all of them now, their receptions are cafes and bars and restaurants. People like being there. And the, the customer lineup they have, many of them are household names. A lot of them are small and medium-sized enterprises, but many are household names and just want to be in those locations and those buildings. So very different, very different experiences, but all related to the same sector. To stick with, with workspace, how are you seeing the flex sector cope with the fallout from the pandemic? That business, like so many, will have had a, quite a rocky time over the past couple of years how what's the what's the sort of road to recovery coming out of that <clears throat> i think flex space has probably recovered better than we all thought and it's often the case that it's the really blindingly obvious when you look back with hindsight why and so if you're a corporate and you're not sure about covid operations how people are going to return to the office but you can go into an office that looks really nice and is really comfortable and has all these amenities, but you don't have to commit for 10 or 15 or 20 years. And you've got a, you've got a, a landlord providing a service that views you as a customer and is totally flexible in how they approach you. That's a, it's actually easier for as an occupier for you to commit to that. And I think they've been, as a consequence... Uh, they're brilliant managers of information. They have a lot of information on their customers, what their customers do, what the customers want and what they need. And I think that flexible approach has probably been an eye-opener for all of us. And, and we've been slow in the UK because many, many countries, you go Scandinavia, Copenhagen, it's a standard two-year lease. Japan has been for, for decades in Tokyo. And so people really do want that flexibility, and it's taking it away from the old-fashioned and the old-style. It's, it's, it's the purest form of an operating company that I think I've seen. They're a real operating business. And if we look at the broader um, London office market, do you think we're close to the bottom? You and I have, have talked recently about what's been happening to values and how much further they might have to fall, just from discussions you're having in the market, or, or indeed maybe around here. Um, what's your sense for what comes next? It's interesting. I think the clearing prices are 20, 25, 30% off for prime assets. And I think that probably is really helpful. We've, all, we've turned a little bit American and we've, we've taken pain really quickly. And I think that's really good for the future. Because uh, people can afford to then invest in these assets and invest capital into them to improve them. I think the issue is, the and this is not an attack on the valuation sector at all, but the valuations have tended to lag that a little bit still. And I know they look for more evidence, and they, 
must say, you know, one isolated transaction can't reset the whole market. But the fact of the matter is you can't trade, you can't sell an asset at 5 or 10% off on average um, what the valuation was last year. Um, and so I think some of the net asset valuations, some of those things in paper need to be recorded with greater correction. I think in reality, people are operating and finding clearing prices at the discounts that are probably appropriate. Are we at a point where you'd be looking to pick up new assets, or would you think, I'm going to hold off, this has got a little way to play out? Well, it's a really boring answer. I sound like a footballer, you sort of play what's in front of you, you know, all those sorts of things. It's, not, uh, it's the asset, it just depends. Some assets are being sold at those, and London and the UK has corrected a little bit quicker than the continental of Europe, from our experience. Um, I think parts of Germany, where there were ultra, ultra low yields, um, have, co have begun to correct. Berlin, for example, so they're attractive. But um, there are other parts that are sort of hanging on, um, and then they are much less attractive. Okay. Um, opening it up to the floor, any questions for Duncan? can be about any of your roles, can't it? Any of your hats? Absolutely, yeah. Sam, go on. Thank you, Tim. Duncan, uh, tell us, uh, um, in your role as chair um, with Seller Group, is there anything that you would um, advise um, them to do differently? Is there anything that, that you're going to, you know, get the, get the old wooden spoon out and stir it up a little bit? Um, wow. Um, well, I think I'll be a better place to answer that in a, in a few months' time. Uh, um, I think I honestly would say the first thing they should do is keep doing what they're doing. Um, how, you, you don't go far wrong. I mean, if you just look at, I mean, we must never fall in love with our buildings, but I just look at Paddington Square. It is beautiful. You sit on the roof, you look over Hyde Park. I mean, it is a beautiful, well-designed building on the doorstep of an ultra-fast railway station with all sorts of communications, and it is a five-minute walk into the West End. So I would say keep doing things like that. I would say the examples about Liverpool Street and how they're heating the pool using excess, I would say keep doing that. The only advice, but I don't think this would be specific to seller, is you have to keep evolving at the same time. So in the way, maybe, I'm not doing them a service here, but in the way they might not have automatically thought we'll have a swimming pool, we'll heat it by the excess heat from the office we're going to build, um, they might not have thought of that a year ago. They might have, but they might not have. And there'll be something new they can do that's a parallel to that in a year's time. So it's it just keep, keep, keep evolving. How did you describe the scheme? Was it almost too high profile, did you say, <laughs> earlier on? It, it, does, it feels like a project that we as journalists will be referring to as the controversial proposals, um, given some of the reactions. But... It, uh, a company like Seller, I mean, it, it doesn't do things by halves, does it? It's, it's going to be an ambitious scheme. It needs to be best in class. Otherwise, you shouldn't do it with all the uncertainty around the market. You need to attract you know, the right people that want to be customers and occupy that, that, that premises. Um, I think there are... We do have some serious challenges across the whole of Europe, including the UK, in the there are some really good intentions that are to protect heritage and protect landmarks, the best bits of Victorian architecture, etc. And that's not easily compatible 
with the best sustainability targets. And I think that's one thing that is going to be really hard and everybody needs to just keep a balance and perspective on that. Because otherwise, the world of preservation could prevent evolution and taking it forward and, and reducing carbon footprint. And uh, yeah, and we all know if, we're, if we don't do that, we know in 30 or 40 years' time we'll be sat here and but it will be underwater. Will that be a real test for this scheme in particular, do you think? No more than any other. London is an old city with lots of Victorian infrastructure and lots of history that people wish to protect for good reasons. But I could say the same if you go to Paris. There are some rather pretty Hasmanian buildings, boulevards, etc. Maybe Berlin has some less constraints, so that to, to use an extreme example. You know, it covers... I think probably a bigger surface area than London, but it's half as densely constructed upon. So, there's th so it might be easier for them to provide more inventory to the market. But um, anywhere with history, which basically includes most of Europe, is going to have to juggle with that. I don't think seller schemes are any different. Um, I, kn I know we're coming up on, on time here, but I wanted to just jump on to um, a topic that you and I discussed when we last met, which was running a business, management style. And... The difference in being somewhere like Schroeder's, doing that job, and then leaving to build a relatively small team, something that feels far more entrepreneurial, I'd imagine. How does that shape what you need to bring, what you need to offer, and, um, and how does it change, I guess, your style as a manager and, and a builder of a business? Um, <coughs> oh, good. Oh, I don't know if any of colleagues from Schroeder's are here. I'm getting in trouble. Um, I don't think, I think you've got to be authentic. You've got to be honest yourself, I think, actually, whether you're in a big or a small company. Um, I think there's some golden rules. Don't ask anyone to do something that you wouldn't be prepared to yourself. Um, I think treating people with respect. I know it sounds a little bit wet behind the ears, but it's just those sorts of things were given. I think it gets harder the more regulated you are. But it is very important that people really have the confidence to take risk and not get electric shock treatment if they fail. You don't want people to make the same mistake twice, that's not good. But you do learn a lot when people make mistakes. And you have to remember, you know, the world that I was brought in, you know, we, we made so many mistakes, people just didn't know. Um, and that was how we learned. And I think that is, it's important for the big companies to do that. I think it's very important when you're setting up to have people to have courage and convictions. Um, and as long as there's transparent environment, you can afford to, to have those risks. So the, the most extreme uh, a story that's very popular people know about is, is British Airways. They have this total sharing. You know, anything ever goes wrong with a plane or a pirate, I'm sure all airlines are the same. The one golden rule is they must share what they've learned and what's happened. And I think if you have that, it's actually a pretty good environment. Never say that to my kids, though. I've got, but I guess it's particularly true in a market like this, right, where people are, people are going to make mistakes. There's, um, there's more to play for. Things are riskier. Having that attitude, that's more of a necessity now, maybe, than when times are good. Yeah, I, I, the first partner who was one of the best people I ever worked with when I set Gatehouse up, when we both left LaSalle, uh, was once described, not by you, by journalists, as the break and Mears Accelerator. And I remember him being hugely offended by it. 
And of course, the fact of the matter was it was meant as the bigger compliment because if you have a car that's got really good brakes, you can go faster and you can go around corners more quickly, safely. And so I think why I say that is in the right framework, you can afford people to make mistakes as long as you can put your foot on the brake fast enough. Sounds pretty good. I'm being signalled, but I wasn't sure. It's a question. Okay, there we are. I was trying to read your mind. Sorry. Hi. Um, I thought it's been fascinating hearing what you, your thoughts on repurposing buildings. And the one that struck me when you talked about recycling. Now, I might be just a boring old property lawyer, but when we do an agreement for development, one of the first clauses is building with new materials of their several kinds. Now... Obviously, you're happy with recycled products and, 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 the, and the world needs us to recycle things and use things up more than just buying new. But to what extent are the finance industry and the institutions, do you think, on the same page, that the spec of a building could be recycled products that were put in the 1970s rather than just specifying current building practice, known energy ratings, etc., etc.? That seems to me something, it's, a, it's a bridge we've got to cross because that's going to stop, that's the, probably the thing that's stopping us recycle. Yes. Um, the first thing is, is we're all on the same journey, and I can't remember a, a bank lender, for example, that I've seen in the last year that isn't trying to print green loans, and that's aligned with reusing and recycling. Um, you can't have it if you don't recycle. So, so it, it would all, it would be the weirdest juxtaposition or opposites, um, just to just to not do that. So, I think we are on the journey and moving in the right direction there. I do think it is, on at the most basic level, the, t the two things I add is it, it is at one extreme criminal. If you've got a good concrete foundation or structure or steel frame or reinforced concrete frame, given what energy and the process used to make concrete, uh, I know there's better forms of making it now, it is criminal to pull that down and put something new. Absolutely. So I think everybody, what I describe it is everyone intellectually gets that point. Maybe, maybe without putting words in your mouth, is whether or not they then emotionally relate their behaviour to that. Um, and it's, it's a bit like, again, using an analogy with children, it's a bit like explaining to children why you know, it was bad pulling your sister's hair out. And they say, yeah, it's bad pulling their sister's hair out. Are you, are you, are you glad you did it? Are you sorry you did it? No, I'm not sorry I did it. Um, and I think we've got to get over that. It, it, we've got to make sure we emotionally link, I think, without wanting to sound preachy, we've got to emotionally be able to link what intellectually everybody seems to accept, apart from, I don't know, the last president of the US. Well, look, we'll, we'll think about drawing it to a close. So I just wanted to ask, uh, finally, these three roles that we've talked about, you kind of touched on the thread that links them together. They're sort of in, in some disparate markets. You wouldn't necessarily put them all together, but they sit, along, they sit alongside each other um, better than you might think. What would you hope that you personally can achieve across those three roles? holding them, um, in terms of your impact on real estate in, in London and any other, other cities that you're, that you're investing in? Uh, my answer would be the same for, for all of them, but it would be the same for almost any, ro any role I took. Um, I think you, I, I've been fortunate, some would say damn lucky, in my career. I've worked with some brilliant people that have 
set really good examples to me. And I know virtually everything good that I've done has been mimicking or stealing the best bits of really good people I've worked with. And so I think one of the things I should try to do is, is try my utmost to pay some of that back and help support the people in a similar way to the people that I used to try and mimic. Well, listen, um, Duncan, thank you for joining us. Um, yes, please come around for the course. No, you weren't too early. Please do.